For January 9th, 2023, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 758. What makes a Knives Out a Knives Out? Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. The overthinkers are. <laughs> I nearly made a very bad, <laughs> nearly made a very bad joke. Um, uh, the overthinkers are your your smart, funny friends from the internet and friends. I have gathered you here on this beautiful, remote Greek island for you to solve my murder. Now, I've, I've created a murder mystery. It is the most complicated and fiendish plot, uh, that you could ever come up with. It has labyrinthine twists and turns. It has, uh, many, many, um, uh, you know, red herrings and false starts. It Matt, has, Matt, Matt, yeah. Matt. You were eaten by your basset hound, weren't you? Oh, how did you know? <laughs> how Don't did you know? Lips, they're coated in red. <laughs> uh, uh, Matthew, I- I've seen that dog, that hound. It is a killer. <laughs> Anybody can tell that dog is a killer. Um, yes, it was the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Uh, and it was how the, the affable basset hound viciously tore me limb from limb. Uh, you got it, guys. And you might know that, that we are talking about, uh, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. The latest or- entry into the Knives Out cinematic universe. Yeah, I, I guess I saw an interview. I I don't know about you guys, but in my personal media echo chamber bubble, in my like algorithmically curated things that get recommendations that get recommendation to me, um, Ryan Johnson has been just everywhere over the last couple weeks on every you know I don't know YouTube series, on every podcast, on every late night show that I get you know suggested to me through various channels. Like is and so in one of these one of these interviews. I, I read that he wanted to not even call it uh, Knives Out, to not refer to that. But that doesn't seem, I don't know, that doesn't seem wise. It doesn't seem like they're, they'd be using the, the IP right. So, yes, Benoit Blanc, the uh, greatest detective, yeah. gentleman detective, the last of the gentleman detectives. Like, like, if anything, it feels like the title should be like Glass Onion, a Benoit Blanc mystery. That's a good point. Um, the, yeah. And the, the way that there were like Hercule Poirot mysteries from Agatha Christie or like, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, uh, I'm sorry. What kind of host here would I be on our secluded island if I didn't introduce the cast of characters? Ju- the, the, our, the mysterious stranger who comes <laughs> in every once in a while just to say something extraordinarily revealing or is it? It's Matthew Belinky. The only reason that I knew what time this podcast was supposed to happen is because I I cut open your bespoke mystery box with a chainsaw in order to see the invitation. Otherwise, I just didn't have time. Peeling up in a uh, in a car from a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, our automotive, or on a on a what a Harley motorcycle, or maybe in a Subaru. It's our automotive. <laughs> expert uh brandishing his brandishing his power tools his chainsaw for yard work it's peter fenzel when are we gonna get to some serious overthinking around here i'm a serious person who only does serious things 
and uh and city dwelling uh former government employee mark lee comes to uh comes in he's recently left for the private sphere what what uh what nefarious goings on in in his life mark let's, let's lee let's get to it let's get to it time is money guys time is time is money bear market bull market um buy the dip um something something money uh all right uh glass onions here here are the caveats we decided right before we're not going to try to recap uh the plot of the film it's uh it's a mystery there are a a lot of twists and turns we're just going to refer to things so you know you'll have done the you'll have seen the reserve reading list all of these are uh, on reserve in the library you can uh go and review them uh at your leisure also uh all spoilers all books for the uh the knives out uh series series of books and cinematic universe we're uh we're just uh from this from this point forward all uh uh all bets are off and and we're going to talk about you know who done it and and all the kind of the machinations along the way the biggest machination being the machine of the movie theater projector showing this on a screen uh matt i understand you actually went to a uh one of those antiquated institutions a movie theater and saw this film in a room with other people breathing their contagion upon you how was that experience yeah i i consider myself a a ryan johnson stan that i actually you want to you want to hear a weird flex that i actually went to see uh the brothers bloom ryan johnson's i think it's second feature yeah. Uh, in a in a movie theater on opening weekend, and Ryan Johnson was there introducing it. And this is like you know wow. way before he he was still like an in, in indie darling. Um, Ryan Johnson uh, here uh, here's something I want to put a pin in. Much like Daniel Craig, the trajectory of his career was like bigger and bigger and bigger movies until he directed a movie that was almost as big as movies could be. Right, Star Wars Episode Eight, and then the question is like, where do you go from there? And the answer for both Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson is like, we're going to make some quirky murder mysteries for the rest of our lives. That's um, yeah. Uh, I've but, thought, I've thoughts, but you keep going. Yeah. So, so I was very excited to see this movie and, and I think, I, I don't know what Brian Johnson had to do for Netflix. I guess he probably, he, he, he um, signed away like an additional five years of his life to, to the Netflix machine in order to do this, but he got Netflix to release it in movie theaters for a weekend for Thanksgiving weekend. And so I did get to see this with a, with a big appreciative uh, New Yorker audience uh, both both an audience of New Yorkers and an audience that subscribes to the magazine The New Yorker. Um, and it, it oh, did, did you it see it at, well at Film Forum? Did you see it at, <laughs> at at the Angelic? Did you see it at the IFC Center? Did you? I don't see- want to. I, I I don't want to give away assassination coordinates, but it may have been one of those. <laughs> well, nice. But uh, uh, Ryan Johnson himself didn't show up, but everyone was. So you feel like everyone was a professional movie watcher, like yourself. Yeah, I, I I think uh, let's put it this way: the the scene that I want to that I want to start uh, tee up to start with was uh, what I would propose is the most overthinking scene, the most overthinking scene of movie history, which is not the introduction, the delightful introductory sequence with the with the actual mystery box where they had to they had to solve like a series of puzzles in order to like get to the get to the center, which is which both a delightful sequence introducing all the characters. Um, very funny. And of course, like introducing many of the metaphors and conceits that will come up later in the movie. We should definitely come back to that. But the one I want to talk about is the introduction, the reintroduction of the detective Benoit Blanc, the world's greatest detective. So after the Mm -hmm. title appears, we see his face 
sort of uh, uh, with a look of sort of consternation and deep concentration on it. And then we see the reverse cut, which is a game of Among Us. Um, this is, I, I have, I have such deep admiration. The, the seat alone was like worth the price of admission. Um, so he's playing a game of Among Us, which itself, first of all, is it works on so many levels, guys. Um, it, it, it is something that was super popular during the days of the pandemic when the movie was set. So like, it is one of these things where like it establishes the movie as like a sort of near past period piece effortlessly, but it also is a video game about solving a murder mystery. It's a video game about a bunch of people stuck on a, you know, stuck at, at a spaceship together. None of them can leave. And one of them is a murderer. And you're, you're, you gather around the table in the grand room and you have to accuse somebody, which is of course exactly what happens later in the movie. But you know, this is the silly video game version. So that alone Guys, if it had only been that as the introduction bell up block, Dainu. But then we see the further sort of uh, 2020 reference, which is that he's doing it as part of a Zoom call. And the four members of the Zoom, I can barely believe this happened. When when this, I I, I did a spit take of like popcorn and like diet uh, sprites when this happened. So the four members of the Zoom call, um, in in orders of uh, of incredulity is a uh, Natasha the actress Natasha Leone, uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and then two people who are ha- I believe ha- have been dead for a long time. It's, it feels like a long time when the movie came out, but of course we're not dead in 2020 when the movie took place. Is the the composer Stephen Sondheim. And the actress, and of course the the actress, perhaps most famously, you know, to a certain generation, playing a um, a, a a solver of mysteries, an amateur sleuth, uh, Angela Lansbury, and the four of them are on a Zoom call together playing Among Us. So Angela Lansbury, obvious connection to murder mysteries. Stephen Sondheim, uh, the author. Of a murder mystery movie. And like, I think he was a, like a puzzle fanatic. It, I, and it makes sense with kind of like some of the intricacy of his lyrics and his music. Mm-hmm. A, pu- mm-hmm. a puzzle, yeah. f- a puzzle fanatic wrote with Anthony Perkins a murder mystery movie, um, which was entitled The Last of Sheila, right? Which in one of my many interviews that I've, that I was recommended, Ryan Johnson said was an inspiration. Kareem Abdul Jabbar, a, uh, a mystery author. Uh, w- who writes uh, stories like Sherlock Holmes fanfic about Mycroft Holmes and uh, Natasha Leone, who's going to be in the new Columbo-like um, Ryan Johnson created murder mystery TV show uh, that's that's coming in in a couple of weeks or or yeah, just I think it's coming in a, a couple weeks on Peacock. So um, and. Uh, and who played and, and Angela Lansbury looks like the actress who played Mrs. Peacock in Clue. Uh, and all of that is relevant except the last bit, which I just made up right now. Um, so yeah, Matt, like murder mystery royalty in that, uh, in the four boxes of those, those Hollywood squares. But it all, I mean, just stepping out of all that, there, there's so much there, but it's just sort of like, you know, the original theme is, if, if I'm trying to rewind the clock like 15 years to when we started up this site, we were trying to think of like, you know, what's, what made something an overthinking and premise or like, you know, what, what the sweet spot of overthinking it was. And it was sort of that Venn diagram of sort of high culture and low culture. And the idea of like having these 
these artists, these these geniuses, these masters of their fields, sort of gathered together playing a casual game of Among Us, and then and then sort of like rassing each other, you know, like like in in a very sort of like casual, just sort of like killing time sort of way, and then proposing that that they that they play um a Jackbox instead. Um, such a delightful way to like reintroduce this, this character who is so much fun to hang out with and is clearly not going to take himself seriously, even though it's, it's well established that within the world, everyone understands that this is the world's greatest detective. There's no question that everybody respects him, even though he is somewhat clownish, somewhat buffoonish. Um, although of course the, the reveal, like halfway through the movie is that like, maybe he's, he's playing up that side of himself. Right, that like he's not quite as uh, befuddled as he seems. So, um, well, I'm I'm curious, Matt, about the the like the uh, other the other than your own spit takes. Like, what was the was it a real clout, crowd pleaser? Were people you know, I New York audiences are famously loud. Like, was that the case? Or you know, did people uh, have big reactions to this movie when you saw it? I think I mean honestly, like you know, just. Man, you know, there's so many ways I could I could talk about it. I mean, I think the opening sequence was it 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 sort of hits on a different level, right? Because it's sort of like all these people that are hugely successful, high up in the in governments, high up in in uh you know like corporates, you know, like one of them is like a designer of a major corporation, and one of them is like an influencer. We don't know how they're all connected. They all get this strange puzzle. They all have this connection. They're all going to meet in a mysterious location. Um, so it's like a really sort of like intriguing setup for a movie. And then the scene number two is just the world's greatest detective. And instead of immediately sort of jumping on the trade, he's just sitting in a bathtub playing among us. And I think, I think it's, it's such a great, the, the movie, um, even though like, obviously it is firing on all cylinders and it is, you know, there's, there's hidden gems in every single scene. It will not allow you to take it seriously. So people, so people got loud and laughed and, uh, and had fun. Yeah. I think, I think people, people got loud and laughed because it, it felt like such a, you know, like, like almost like a, it, it was sort of taking the wind out of its own sails mm. by like, you know, it's, it's, it's such a such a silly re- and then of course like the you know one of the meta jokes of that scene is that Benoit Blanc is very bad he's very bad at Among Us right he's the world's greatest detective but he is terrible and of course this itself is foreshadowing because then like they they sort of they can't understand why he can't solve the mystery and I think his line is something like you know I'm bad at things that are dumb <laughs> right which is you know and it feels like this sort of like uh, sour grapes throwaway but it kind of comes back later because you know part of the part of the solution at the end is that the i mean you know are, are we going to get in is i think it's fair to say that like if, if you wanted to remain spoiler free now is a good time to bail yep uh so like one of the reveals at the end is that miles is not a genius he's not he's not uh not that smart at all not not only is he not a brilliant you know billionaire genius you know uh uh polymath uh renaissance man but he like you know uh, you know barely uh understands you know high high school sat words 
Um, and I think that like, you know, Bella Blanc, it's, it's sort of like one of the reasons he's kicking himself during the final reveal is because like he couldn't see it earlier because he's bad at things that are dumb. Yeah. And it's like he tunes it. And that's that's, you know, one of the ways that the metaphor, the central metaphor comes into play, which is that the the glass on which, by the way, like before I remember driving to, to see the movie and I was sort of like musing out loud about like what the title referred to. And I was thinking like the thing about a glass onion is like it's something that you have to peel but if you try to peel it, it's just going to break. Like there's no way to get to the center of it because it's too fragile to peel, um, which I think, you know, that I think that was a good guess. But that's not what it meant. The whole point of a glass onion is it's something that you could peel, but you don't have to because the solution is right there in the in the open. And it's just sort of like it's. It's deceptively simple, right? Like you think it's complex, but it's not. And I think that's why Bella Blanc is, you know, you know, so among us is maybe like a good metaphor to it because like the reason Bella Blanc is bad at among us is because it's it's not that difficult a game and he can't help but overthink it. Um, and that's the that's the problem that he gets into when he gets to the island, is that like the what's going on is not that complicated, but of course it, it seems complicated on the, on the surface. And, you know, he being a master detective, he can't help, but, you know, treat it as if it's like a, you know, he's, he's met his own personal Moriarty. And then he's sort of like disgusted both at miles and at himself. when it turns out that like, he's not dealing with a criminal mastermind at the end. Yeah. It's a, it's a good point. Uh, Pete, you're good at things that are dumb. What did you think of that? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, what did I think of what? What do you mean? I, I mean, where, uh, where do you want to take it Take it from here? Where, where? I mean, if you peel back a layer of this glass onion, how did you experience this film? Uh, well, I watched half of it on my TV and half of it on my phone while putting away groceries. So I don't didn't have quite the same cinematic experience of it that Matt did. And I think that the movie suffered for me as a result because I took a break in the middle. And I think the middle is kind of the weakest part. And it probably would have been helpful for my overall fondness for the movie if it had just kept going and I just sort of breezed through it. Um, yeah. Can you be more specific? Like what, which middle are you talking about? Like what? Uh, the flashback. Uh, okay. Yeah. When it goes all the way back and you see like there's a twin sister and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it may, those of us, those people who have been overthinking fans for a long time might remember that I'm not actually, I'm not really a big fan of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because I found the big bulky flashback in the middle to kind of take me out of it and lose my interest. And so I don't I don't tend to like flashbacks um, and I'm sure there are tons of exceptions. But uh, in this particular movie, I was really interested and invested in the first part. And I love the scene with the uh, with the crossbow. You know, I love that they set up the murder mystery and then he immediately solves it. And it's like, oh, there's going to be another murder and there's going to be another murder mystery. And then that is, you know, that that happens. And then we are immediately taken out of it. And like it ceases to be the important thing. And we get kind of thrust back. And at that point, it's like, well, the kid is awake and I can't watch this gory, not gory, but this potentially violent and, and uncouth show while my my uh, my child is in the room. So I have to come back and watch the rest of it later. But at that point, a lot of my built up enthusiasm for it had kind of waned. Um, so I guess I saw the latter part of it mostly in the context of watching and discerning the social commentary, which was fine, but like not particularly like rigorous or interesting. Um in the sense that, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the sense that society is the glass onion, man, because we can all look at it and we all intuitively know what's going on that's wrong. It's just that we pretend that there's all these layers over it, right? Which is, um, 
which is something that pretty much anybody can argue. And whether it seems credible or not really depends on whether they're they agree with you or not. Right. So, like, if you say that, it's like, see, the problem is that rich people are the problem. Right. That's the problem. Everybody pretends that there's some sort of problem other than the rich people. There's not. Right. All we have to do is kill the rich people and everything will be better or at least just humiliate them. Just escalate violence to a certain point. Trust that nothing bad is going to happen as a result of that and then walk away feeling good about ourselves. Right. Like that's really how we do this whole thing. Um, and, and and it's it's uh, or you could put Jews in there. We all know what the problem is. Now, I'm not saying those two things are equivalent in terms of their truth value um, or in terms of. Uh, in terms of like whether they are, you know, equivalent in terms of what, you know, how you should credit them. But just that the style of thinking, like the core argument of the movie is that if the solution is obvious, you should not put too much pressure on yourself to be sure, to have evidence, right, to know. Because the 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 convincing yourself by looking at the other alternatives is a way of getting away from the truth that's obvious to you. And I just don't think that's how people think. Like, I don't, I don't think people think that way. And, and, um, and I, I mean, I'm arguing that this is more the perspective of the movie and the metaphor of the glass onion, the idea that society, you know, society all around us is comprised of layers that are transparent at this their sort of core fraudulentness, 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 I guess, uh, fr- uh, not fragility, um fragility fragility and fraudulity um but that uh yeah that everybody knows who the jerk is right i mean again this is how i read the movie so you guys correct me if i'm wrong that the idea is that this is a murder mystery where everybody knows who the jerk is everybody knows who did the murder mostly if they just stop and think about it he says hey everybody come solve my murder which is a murder that he did right prior to inviting everybody to come solve it they go there and then they immediately solve his murder and and then nothing happens. Right. And then then there's like the whole thing about like the fire and the glass and the, the argument about the liability and the for the for the fuel. Um, I would point out that if you had put plutonium or gasoline on the fire, it also would have been bad. Um, there's just because something blows up in a fire doesn't necessarily mean it's not viable as an energy source. Um but uh, at any rate, I mean, is that am I getting that? that that's sort of what the glass onion is. It's like, stop pretending that it isn't obvious. Uh, I mean, that's that, that, yeah. It is a valid reading. Um, I'm going to try to uh, address both of your criticisms at once. But I'm, without really um, disagreeing so much again, like, you know, that was your experience and like, you know, the all, all fine and good. Well, no, 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 it's um, fine. I mean, it's also I'm in, I'm yeah. in a mood. So like it okay, has nothing great. to do with the movie. So like, tell me I'm wrong, please. Like, I'm not, not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Yeah. I will instead just like kind of give you a different perspective, which is yeah. like, well, not it's not going to be that shocking. Right. Which is it is about the journey, not the destination. Right. Oh, OK. The, the social commentary is um, not that subtle at all. Right. I mean, like a rich dude's house gets blown up by his hubris <laughs> at the middle and at the at the end of it. Right. Like, and, yeah. you know, again, if you go back to the, you know, Ryan Johnson's commentary, but what are you trying to do about this? Like, and, and if you think about the first movie as well, too, it is there's just no subtlety about it. Right. Like the rich assholes right, yeah. are bad. Right. It's, it's like there. And Ryan Johnson has called this his like primal scream at like the stupidity over the last, uh, let's say, like basically of the Trump era, um, mm, the yeah. post Trump and post Trump era. Like, you know, he's very transparent about that um you know in talking about the movie and then you know in your also in your experience of it and then like just to go back to like you know about being about the journey versus the destination um i do think yeah pete that like you know your experience of having uh, of in your viewing of it interrupted like 
um, you know, it, it, uh, detracted from it. Right. It, yeah. it is absolutely meant to be taken in in one sitting in one experience, you know, whether it's in a, in a, in a pristine uh, chapel of cinema in, in, in a theater or, you know, just on, on your couch, at least, you know, being able to kind of absorb the whole thing like that. Right. You're just like, you know, just the 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 velocity of the story and the kind of the, the momentum right, of all the, the quickness of the first one is meant to carry you through kind of the slowness mm. and the recapitulation. Yeah. Um, Right. Because like when you just like kind of like start there, it is quite abrupt. And it is it is certainly the weakest part. Um, the weakest parts of the movie are right there. Right. The fact that there's an identical twin. Right. It's like it's it's too cute by half. You know, it's like, it's, you know, it kind of, you know, viewers like coincidence territory, which you know, we've critiqued many times uh, in, in storytelling. Um, and, um, and yeah, it's it's like it's it uh, it, it, it is it is slow. Um, in terms of a lot of explaining that goes on and um, it does require you to kind of, you know, stretch that suspension of disbelief and, uh, and, and all those things. Right. But like, again, the journey, like, you know, the, the, the journey that you're on is that just like, you know, you, um, it is not that much of a stretch for a viewer to just like, to be considering all the different angles, you know, uh, to, uh, be taking in the perspective of Benoit Blanc and think, oh, could it be this person? Could it be this yeah. person? Like, you know, like that's like that is just like, you know, part of the genre, how these stories are supposed to work. Right. And then to, it's not necessarily you're told at the end that like that was wrong. You are kind of incorrect for doing it. It's just like, well, that was just the experience that you had. It wasn't that fun. <laughs> and now here's a different way to look at that. Look at this rich asshole getting his uh, finally getting his comeuppance. Isn't this also fun? Pete. Was this not also fun? <laughs> it was. I, I think so. I, I thought about this a bunch. And so I wanted to explain that as my initial perspective, which is just that, like, um, that the 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 dimensions of sort of cognitive bias and kind of evidence, evidence based thinking and kind of doubting your own conclusions is something I care about a lot and very interested in. And the way that it interacts with plus movie is interesting. But there's another element that might actually be coloring what I think about it more and especially the mean things I say about it more than the actual substance of it, which is the Horatian versus Juvenalian satire dynamic. Okay, where, oh, so like, I, I, I'm- uh, Define and unpack, right? Two different modes of satire, right, that are uh, of, of a classical sort, very common. One is a sort of loving satire, and one is a sort of biting satire, right? Mm, okay, yeah, this is good, yeah. Yeah, so like the Horatian satire is like, it's it's like a satire of Rome by Romans, who sort of laughs at how stupid everybody is and ma definitely makes recommendations that like things should be different than how they are, but doesn't do it from a place of kind of dark consequences and kind of deep anger. Right. Um, so a good example of like that would be, I mean, any sort of parody that, that involves a satire of something serious. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking about like, you know, if you consider the naked gun to be like a satire of the incompetence of police departments, right? Like, uh, like, like that's, that's, I mean, again, even a little bit less than that. I mean, the daily show in general tended to be, uh, more Horatian a lot of the time. And that's a bad example. Cause they would go back and forth on it too. But like the idea of, of, Oh, you know, Kate Hudson shows up for the, to go to the Island and she's wearing a mask that's like made of 
gauze, right? Which I think is I think is something that some person really did. Right? It was like, absolutely a thing, yeah. Yeah, which is like the most <laughs> – now, you can see that in one of two ways. You could, I mean, you can see it in any number of ways. You can see it in one of two ways that stick out to me. One would be the Horatian way, which is that she is so decadent and silly – as as a as a uh, celebrity that she doesn't know that she's having a big party during COVID, right? Like where nobody's masked. She doesn't know that her mask has holes in it. This is the part of it where it's like, oh, she she had her clothes made at a sweatshop because she thought a sweatshop is where you make sweatpants, <laughs> right? Like 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 she actually thinks that she's just really dumb. But it's she's dumb in a way where the jokes are softened. You know, and and the absurdity of it is something we can all laugh at. Or does she show up to the island with the gauze mask because she really doesn't care whether you live or die? Right. Like how real a threat is covid in this world of this movie? And I'm not saying that's something the movie needed to dwell on more. But I think that there's a dimension of the movie where the things that the characters do that are seen as kind of comically bad are are not actually funny like like there there need there's sort of a change in key that maybe doesn't actually hit at any particular beat in the movie there's no particular one spot i can think of for much of this where the failures and flaws of these characters go from being things that are mostly absurd and funny to being like actually really bad and i think that the end of the movie treats them like they're actually really bad and the beginning of the movie treats them like they're mostly harmless and and so I th- I would think that there is an escalation through the movie where you get there, but I'm missing some tonal cue uh, that I'm that would help me make that transition. Like like, and this might be part of why I'm struggling with the flashback because that's like the moment. That's the moment where we should see like when one of their own dies is the moment where we should see who these people really are, right? Like, what do they really think? How do they really feel about each other? Do they actually care? I mean, I, I was I was thinking like, oh, man, you know, there's a great after credits scene in this movie. Yeah. The camera goes back and it's just Batista's mom crying in her kitchen because her darling baby that she raised and fed, you know, has <laughs> oh, been has, has died of anaphylaxis among his closest friends, all of whom knew he had a food allergy and nobody had an EpiPen and nobody saved him. And he was just doing a, an online show. He wasn't he she could barely get him out of the house. Right. Like so there's this idea of like how what is this guy's death? You know, and and do we really think that Batista's character is a real social evil? Now, I'm not saying that's an absurd suggestion, because I think that there's an argument that this movie definitely thinks he is. Right. Yeah. But I don't feel like I got a beat to really appreciate the shifting gear, you know, to really appreciate. Oh, now the movie's serious. And before it was silly. And I, I think throwing in the idea of like, I have a secret twin sister actually lowers the plausibility of everything happening. Right, right. You know, it's sort of like it's like it's it's an interesting move because on one hand, it's like, oh, no, this protagonist isn't a like rival billionaire. This isn't one of the gray matter people trying to go after, you know, Walter White. Right. Like hmm. like this is a like school teacher from Alabama, you know, who's like, you know, middle class at best, trying to take care of her kids, trying to take care of the kids at school. Her job isn't funded. She's really struggling. Like she's the protagonist. Okay, make that real for me. Like you say it, it's in a speech in the movie, but like, okay, is this idea that she is like this person who's really struggling and she's surrounded by all this wealth and 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 these people are really callous and horrible? Um, 
I just I want I, I can I know those things are true about the characters, but I don't feel them as much because I feel like I'm not given the opportunity by the movie to feel them because of the flow of the plot and the scenes yeah. that they chose to include and not include. The, the, so that's, the, that's that's where I am with it. This is I'm going to leave it to others to rationalize this, but I will just point out that a lot of what you're describing struggling with there, Pete. Um, is also what a lot of us struggled with the last Jedi. I know the Ryan Johnson. Movie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is this thing taking the Star Wars seriously, or is it just trying to undermine the whole thing yeah. and take a dump on it? <laughs> and why does it have a big scene in the middle that totally takes us out of the action? So also, that, that we lose our yeah. footing yep. and, and we lose our we yeah, lose our previous planet. opinion. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually kind of brilliant, right? Like he really foils our attempts to have a pre-established notion of the end of the movie based on the beginning of the movie by throwing in an interlude. <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah. So, so I've talked a lot. I mean, I think Matt has a lot of thoughts about this movie. Um, and I wonder which, if anything resonate with it. Uh, all, oh, you, cause I mean, I always like to hear from the people that can't be with us a lot. I also like oh, to hear from rather a lot. Um, so, I mean, I'll kick it back to him if so, but, I mean, I felt like I just threw out a bunch of stuff that was very contrary to your experience, and I'm curious what you hear about or think about all of that. Yeah, no, Matt, I, Matt, I think... Matt, your fave is problematic, okay? <laughs> no, it's not so, problematic. It's a murder uh, you mystery. Know. The whole thing is a problem. Of course it's problematic. <laughs> if it weren't problematic, it wouldn't be a murder mystery. <laughs> it's a problem. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's – you know, in one respect, you know, you you were sort of proposing it's like, well, what is this movie trying to say? Like, what's the thesis of this movie about? Like, you know, we all we all know, we all know the truth, but none of us want to say. It. Which is certainly there, by the way, because the the point of the movie is that like all of these people, all of the the characters who get the mystery box at the beginning know that Miles, uh, you know, is fraudulent, but none of them want to say it because they're all they're all suckling at the teat, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, you know, the, they're stuck in the same. Uh, problem at the end of the movie until until the Mona Lisa gets destroyed. <laughs> Even after the murder is revealed, we're still like, okay, now they know that Miles is not just fraudulent, but in fact a murderer. But they still they can only implicate him by destroying themselves, um, and that like by only by burning the whole thing down. Um, but I mean, like I would also, you, know, I, I almost wonder if you're, you're, you're you know, um, overthinking it. I mean, you know, it's some, you know, it's like you could look at any given episode of Law and Order and just be like, what is this episode of Law and Order about? It's about like, you know, betrayal and family dynamics, and it's about like, you know, the lies we tell to ourselves to get through the day. But every episode of Law and Order is kind of just about like how rich people are the worst, right? Uh, rich oh yeah, people I don't the, mind a good rich people is the worst story. Yeah, it's uh, right. So, so that like, you know, I mean, this, it, this it, movie certainly I... succeeds on the level of a rich people are the worst story. Uh, which, by the way, okay, so let me propose. Okay. L- I think you're missing the, the obvious connection, Matt, to Law and Order, which is that this movie is about Dong. <laughs> oh yeah, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt cameo as the the voice of the Dong, by the way. Yep. In the in the end credits. So here's an interesting way to look at the Knives Out series: is that like what what makes a Knives Out mystery a Knives Out mystery? Obviously, the presence of Daniel Craig as Detective Benoit Blanc. Um, but that like, it seems like there are at least two other aspects, one of which is at least for the, the two data points that we have now, the good guy, the protagonist, the, the, the person who Benoit Blanc is attempting to help is going to be a young, poor woman of color who is stuck in a world of rich people. Really good right? looking, rich- really, really good looking woman of color. 
Yes. You know, and, and so like that's and of course, like, you know, the that's a little bit obscured until the midpoint of this movie when it turns out it's like, oh, OK, it's a poor person. It's a poor person that he's helping. So we're back in the same terms as the first movie, um, which was that it was the maid was the sort of the one technically not the client, but the sort of one that Daniel Craig, Craig was you know, eventually sort of, sort of sympathetic to and, and advocating on behalf of by the end of the movie. And certainly the one we as the audience were almost like she was the viewpoint character of Knives Out. But then that brings me to my second point about like what makes a, um, a Knives Out mystery a Knives Out mystery is that there's something structural. There's got to be a twist in the way it is told, in the way it is unveiled. So to, to recap, the, the first Knives Out, a bit of a twist is like, I, I don't even think it was the entire first act went by, but it was sort of like the, the circumstances of who these people are and the death were sort of laid out, at which point we are then thrust back and shown exactly what happened from the viewpoint of somebody who was there. And it was revealed that it is in fact not a murder, but it was a suicide in order to protect the maid who it seemed at the beginning made, made a, an, a, a fatal medical error. And for the rest of the movie that we are sort of like, you know, privilege her viewpoints. And she's almost like uh, uh, detective Benoit Blanc almost seems like the adversary who is sort of hunting her. And she is trying to, to try to stay one step ahead of him and keep her, keep him from discovering the truth. And then of course it turns out at the end that there, there was somebody attempting to commit a murder. And so that there is, it, it wraps up a neat little package, but it's sort of like, I think that was the, you know, certainly one of the the novelties that made the first Knives Out so refreshing is the fact that instead of it unfolding in a very linear way, following the detective around for the whole time, we sort of see the murder, um, we sort of see the the crime take place, and then um, you know, so it's it's almost like we're tackling it from two ends. On the one hand, it's like we see the detective investigating, but we also sort of know the truth, and we're sort of following the you know, honestly, the the perpetrator. Or you know somebody who thinks that they're sort of perpetrator who thinks that they're 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 the one who's going to jail once all this is discovered, um, as she tries to like escape. So there's a, a different twist in this one, but it's also sort of like this uh, formal conceit, which you know by the way is telegraphed in rather hilarious fashion by Yo-Yo Ma at the beginning, who explains in a really in a really sort of like obvious cliff notesy way what a fugue is. Um, right. Is that like, and he goes into well, like Yo -Yo the whole, Ma. right. So the, you, you, oh, no, it's like, because, um, I, th I think, uh, what is it? Um, Kate Hudson is like trying to identify the piece of music and Yo-Yo Ma just sort of wanders and he's like, ah, that's the Takata and uh, D, D minor. And she's like, are you sure? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, and then he talks about what a fugue is, which is that like, we're going to play the music the first time and then we're going to go back and we're going to play it again. But this time we're going to add a second layer on top. And that sort of layer is going to inform the first layer and it's going to reveal something. Right. And it's sort of like that, that something's going to go on on top of something else. And of course that's what happens is that we run through the events from the time they get onto the island the, to the to the point where it seems like Helen has been killed the first time. And then we rewind to the very beginning, to the moment that Benoit Blanc is informed, you know, gets the knock on his door. Um, and we see everything a second time. So, that you know, that's the sort of formal twist. And I, I fully expect that, like, when the third Knives Out mystery comes out, there'll be some other quirk about the way that the mystery is, is told. And it won't be your standard sort of... Um, you know, everyone shows up at the mansion and then the detective interviews somebody and then eventually he he reveals the killer. I think that there'll be something where we jump backwards and forwards in time and the audience knows stuff that the characters doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I'd say that that's 
a feature of, of what makes a knives out and knives out. No, I, think I think there's, an, I mean, there's another thing, Matt, which I, I, you, you may think this is too obvious to include, but that it has to, it, it sort of does a version of a really famous detective genre, you know, like the, the, um, you know, great manor house mystery in the first one done, you know, done in a, in a particular version or, um, the, like the, the vacation Island mystery, the V like there, there is a like travel mysteries or a thing like death on the Nile is the obvious one that, that, um, that comes to mind of which there was like, a a really opulent, I think older version. And there's a really opulent Kenneth Branagh remake, uh, uh, of it. If I recall that, like, um, you know, that, that I think it's sort of done out of, uh, something out of love for the, out of love for the, the genre, right? They're, they're sort of made, I mean, they're, they're made with, uh, affection, uh, for the genre, which is sort of, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, kind of like caught by what, what Pete said. And I, w- I wonder if like the affection for the genre is, you know, part of the, you know, what he identified as kind of the gentleness, um, of the movie. I also, I, I wonder if it's like difficult to make, a uh, to make an anti-rich people movie because, um, expensive stuff photographs so well, uh, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's just, it's really, what? you'd have to make it very grotesque. And I mean, it's, it's been done. Um, I don't know. I like Fellini comes to mind as like someone who, who did it, like who, who depicted the lives, you know, the lives of the, you know, the rich and fabulous, but in a way that was kind of gross, right. That like tipped, tipped over, tipped over the line, but you, you get into like, you get into surrealism, you get out of the realm of what you could put in a, you know, in a commercial, um, like us release motion picture. Right. Although Matt, Matt, I, I'd argue that he, accomplishes that at least for me with the sort of presence the grotesque presence of the Mona Lisa right because it's not just the idea that he has bought the Mona Lisa to enjoy in his private uh house but he's there's this there's this very interesting sort of security device whereas that like when anybody raises their voice or does anything abrupt right like the the shutter sort of slams shut in front of it almost like you know in in condemnation of like the what's going on right and there's there's often like the 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 Mona Lisa is like there's a a, a cut to sort of the Mona Lisa's face in reaction to like what's going on so the Mona Lisa is sort of passing judgment over everyone around that it, it, you know th- this is this is absolutely sad i don't know which form of satire it is Pete, but it's absolutely satire so it's definitely not subtle at all the idea that this guy is basically like secretly absconded with the mona lisa uh while like all the other all the other poor people are like stuck inside with no toilet paper that like he's like having an it's opulent party with the mona lisa satire, yeah yeah um, but yeah, I, I think that like the, the presence of the mona lisa constantly cutting to it while they have this sort of uh you know the bacchanalia, right? That in the uh, in the glass onion itself, I think, like, really slams home how how wrong this whole thing is. Hmm. Yeah. It, it sort of. It. I mean, it makes sense. And the when when you take seriously the idea that like you know a, a a priceless work of art is is burned to you know to uh i guess to non-existence right and like uh a um important piece of the the whole like you know patrimony of human culture has been destroyed over the course of this movie i guess it is a little uh a little bit harder 
to kind of like be glad because you you got one up on the you got one up on the billionaires you know you like um the the cost was was particularly good i don't know like i i when i saw uh daniel craig's swimsuit two-piece swimsuit um i i was just in love uh, for the the whole rest of the movie, and I, you know, I spent the whole time googling where I could get that, uh, where I could get that swimsuit, and I'm I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some like it, there's some you know I don't know shopping article that could that could tell me online, but uh, it's just you know the 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 people. But yes, I mean like it, is the fact that uh, that Kate Hudson is a, a racist sweatshop proprietor, you know, does that uh, does her kind of Adult headedness, uh, absolve her of, of that. And also like, you know, uh, of these people who, you know, I don't know, uh, who all turned against their friend because they knew which side their bread was buttered on. Is it good that, you know, they end the movie essentially in a pact to, um, uh, they end the movie in they end the movie in a pact to uh what to uh bring down Edward Norton and that's uh, you know the that they face no particular uh accountability themselves except for except for poor Dave Batista who only you know who only wanted to to sell his supplements on his uh uh show and to fire his his pistol into the air yeah, I think I, to build on what you said earlier, Matt, I would say that a big part of what makes these kind of stories really fun is that a main reason why it's hard to make an anti-rich people movie is that rich people, by and large, don't do their own dirty work, which detaches them from being main characters in the story uh, if you treat them honestly a lot of the time. So, I mean, the most unrealistic thing about this movie is that Ed Norton would do all this himself. Right. That he would have no security on the island. He would have no assistance. He would he would murder his partner uh, and and he would just he would just do it. He wouldn't pay somebody else to do it. Right. Um, and and, uh, and that that's strange credulity. But in particular, it's strange credulity because he would have to be so personally motivated to overcome the greater ease of just delegating it. And, and these these movies, like these Agatha, Agatha Christie-style mysteries, where all the rich people are trapped in a small space, and they have this sort of opportunity, which this movie points out. They have this opportunity to do things to each other that they don't normally have. Uh, that that I think the, the it's fun to see them turn to their base instincts, right, or their to sort of their base intentions, rather, uh, in the context of these kinds of murders. Um and and I and I wish that this movie had done it more like I wish that you, we had seen more of what these people were capable of when they were really pushed. Um, and uh, I mean, when, who's capable of it? Who's not? I guess I said that already. But I think in general, thinking about like the next Knives Out movie. OK, well, what kind of story are we going to tell? And then and, and what are people going to be willing to do? Like, what is the action? That people are going to be willing to take. In this one, the action is, I'm willing to shoot you in the face now, but 10 minutes from now, I'm not willing to do it because I've been called out and humbled, and thus I'm not willing to shoot you. Um, <laughs> which is like, okay, you know, maybe, but um, but but what's, what is it, what what is the, what, I mean, do you guys, I'm trying to think of a good example. Okay, here's here's the thing, right? 
Hans Gruber is not stupid, right? Like Hans Gruber is a fraud. Hans Gruber is a liar. Hans Gruber wants to convince you that he has all these altruistic motives. Ultimately, Hans Gruber just wants money. And Hans is not stupid. Hans Gruber's plan is like not a particularly smart way to go through life. But like when also when push comes to shove, Hans Gruber is like totally willing to shoot somebody. They're totally willing to shoot somebody, innocent people, people he's never met, you know, people that are helping him because he's lost, right? Like Hans Gruber reflects his lack of uh, scruples by being willing to take drastic action um, and being needing to be put down or thrown down in order to be ended, right? Um, and I guess not every movie is Die Hard, but Die Hard's kind of an anti-rich people movie because it's between mm-hmm. the people who will do anything for money – and and it belonged to that sort of global society that's only interested in money. And then the people with like power and authority within the larger framework of society who aren't willing to do anything, even yeah. when it's urgent. Right. This is um, this is really interesting. I think so. One of the you know, maybe uh, one of the questions you're you're you sort of keep circling back to is like, what does Ryan Johnson feel like these people deserve? Right. Because yeah. like on, on the one hand, on a superficial level, it's sort of like, oh, all these rich people are terrible. But on the other hand, he really seems to like all of them, right? Like, I feel like you don't cast Catherine Hahn unless you want people to love that character, right? That she's like a very charismatic, lovable actress. Even like Kate Hudson, who is like honestly, obviously like racist, super dumb, still just kind of lovable. Like Dave Batista, like all these people. I, I feel like one of the things that comes out here is this must have been a very fun movie to make. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Ryan Johnson personally likes all these people. And I feel like at the end of the day, even though, like, you know, maybe the the text says that, like, all these people are terrible and deserve deserve to, like, you know, die in a fire. Um, really, the, the, the only crime that Ryan Johnson cannot forgive is murder, right? That, like, Miles Miles needs to, to go to jail and never come out because he killed somebody. But since all these other people, even though they were complicit in almost everything else that happens, they didn't actually kill anybody. And so maybe they can, maybe they can continue with their sort of cushy lives. Cause they're not honestly bad people in the way the miles is. he's a murderer. They're not, you know, and, and that's as, as opposed to like, you know, the end of knives out where I think it, it leaves it a little indeterminate, but there's that scene where, where, uh, the maid, her name eludes me, but the, the sort of the, the maid who has willed all the money is standing on the balcony and she's like looking down on the family. And it's clear that like this is the end for all of them, right? That like they're all this is the end of the line for everyone. Whereas that I'm not sure that it's clear. I mean, it, it does seem like they are prepared to risk their positions and reputations in order to do the right thing, but it's not clear that they're actually all going to go down or that they all have to go to jail or, or what? No, I mean, it ends ends in a, in a conspiracy. I mean, it's just a similar, the, they had like engaged in a conspiracy against Janelle Monet and they end in an, in a conspiracy against Edward Norton, right? Like the, the, we're going to, um, you know, we'll, we'll all, I guess, swear that Janelle Monet actually did start the company and, you know, is entitled to, uh, I guess her estate is entitled to all of it or something like that. That, like, I don't know how they go back on what they said in court, but it, it sort of doesn't matter. The, the idea is that, that they, they haven't, uh, fallen really. And like in the first one, like, um, uh, the, uh, 
he's you know uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Shannon and and all of them. Uh, you get the sense that that they're uh, they're disinherited as, as Chris Evans is carted off to to jail. You know, you get the sense that they're all. Uh, all these, you know, useless leeches are, um, you know, are going to have to, to scuttle away. And it's not, it's, it's definitely that, that kind of like, um, you know, that, that kind of, uh, that kind of social, that kind of like collective social culpability, the kind of the much harder problem to solve is, um, uh, you know, it, it's kind of elided because it's, I'm, I'm coming around to kind of Pete's, Pete's point of view here because the, uh, you know, society's ills are, uh, condensed into one punchable face in the person of Ed Norton and one blow upable house, uh, you know, in the, the, you know, form of this majestic, majestic villa. And once all that, you know, once all that is done, then, you know, uh, uh, society is, is better now. Society is better now, right? It's better at the end of the, uh, it's so better at the end of the film. Here's a question I have. This goes back to our discussion about genre and also with the, the broader Ryan Johnson oeuvre of like, you know, uh, paying homage to the uh, genre while at the same time undermining it, right? Which is that like for these sort of whodunit murder mysteries, right? Um, how common is it for the story to really gesture out beyond the narrow confines of solving the mystery uh, solving the murder mystery and making sure that the murderer him or herself is brought to justice. Right. Like when we talked about before with the ending of the first times out movie with Marta, I think that was her name, like the housekeeper there, um, you know, looking down at the other family. And then with this one here with like this kind of gesturing outside of the confines of the movie with the, 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 the getting their story straight and, you know, testifying and entering a new conspiracy against miles right that that feels to me uh without being like super familiar with the genre as quite an exception right like that's kind of like pushing the boundaries of like what you can get away with you know who done it is anybody familiar enough with the with the broader genre to to comment on that i mean from the ones that i've seen and i'm mostly just filling time as other people are thinking um i tend to think of the social commentary in whodunits as being narrower and more specific mm-hmm um, like there'll be one character who is, you know, from, you know, the Austrian empire or something. And like, they have like specific, they have a specific conflict with another character and the, and the, the piece takes a perspective on that particular political issue. I suppose I'm trying to think of like, I've read more of the, like the private eye stuff where, you know, um, it's it it is a big deal. Like this stuff does tend to happen, though maybe they don't necessarily hit it on the nose as much. Uh, but Matt, you were trying to get in there, Matt Rather, right? All I was um, about, all I was going to say was I don't read enough mysteries. Uh, yeah. I was, you know, I always enjoy them, but I I um I I read uh I read all of Sherlock Holmes once. I read all you know all Sherlock Holmes stories and uh, novels and novellas extant, which were you know collected in a mass market paperback that I, I got for you know, $7.99 at, at one point. And, um, I mean, my, my main, you know, I don't know, my main, uh, reaction to them was, was, you know, how much, uh, how much they cheated, right? Like how, how much the quote unquote deduction re- relied on, um, uh, you know, facts, not 
specifically in evidence or relied on, you know, sort of uh, cultural knowledge that you were supposed to have that there, there, there was kind of like, uh, there was kind of like an audience, uh, uh, there was kind of like an audience um, kayfabe sort of where you had to like pretend to be in the world where these things are true in order for the, those, those things to happen. But, you know, I don't know other than that, from that sort of progenitor, I'm not a huge Agatha Christie or like contemporary murder mystery type, uh, uh, type of guy. Yeah. I, I would say to make another, draw another sort of literary historical dichotomy, there is a dichotomy between what I would call, you know, Raymond Chandler and Mickey Spillane detective stories in that, area of it i kind of wonder whether they're going to go in that direction whether there's going to be whether they all are going to involve everybody being trapped in a house and doing the mystery that way or whether they're going to do a sort of private detective kind of story um where he like wanders around a city yeah like like a good something ryan johnson would probably really be into is like there's a city setting where everything is really tight and grimy and close and dark and then there's like the estates setting where he goes out into the countryside or into the outskirts and there's like a big mansion right with a big vaunted you know ceiling vaulted ceilings and stuff um and a little uh, bit of a parasite vibe right where like the the wealthy have these like well manicured estates yeah, and the poor have to like scrub, you know, scrabble to get by. Right. Um, and and the difference being that in a in a Mickey Spillane type story, you know, the hero is down in the mud, and you know, it's like it's it's like all the sexiness, all the desperation, all the violence. You know, everybody's doing all of it, and this is sort of part of the noirishness of it. Uh, and, and the Raymond Chandler style is more like the hero is kind of an avenging angel who may not necessarily rise above it in terms of like charisma or in terms of like being in charge, but who is a sort of instrument of justice who has a sort of moral separateness from the world. So like, yeah, it, what, what yeah. was, what was Chandler's like favorite famous line about is, is down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean. Right. Some, yeah. Exactly. Something like that. Right. Where he had, he had this, this conception of the detective as the white knight, which is the exact opposite of Mickey Splane. Mickey Splane is all about like, you know, he's like the punisher, right? He's like somebody who has to do the dirty work that maybe the police can't do, right? The police can't just murder everyone, but, but, um, you know, Mike, Mike Hammer, Hammer can, <laughs> right. He can, he can like bash through the door and like shoot everyone because they need shooting. Sure. The, right? the, the, the then, clue is in the, the name with Mike Hammer, the, the clue, you know, the, the yeah. his, Michael, his, the, the angel. I went through a brief, like Mickey's play kick. And of course the, the first Mike Hammer novel is either the first or second is I, the jury. Which is so great. <laughs> um, and it is like, like it, it's, it's ridiculously pulpy. Um, but, but, uh, you know, obviously, um, Raymond Chandler is very different because the whole point of Raymond Chandler is that like he is he's the only noble person in Los Angeles. Right. And and as a result, he often gets like, you know, beat up and taken advantage of. And he comes off as like a little bit of like a sad, a sad case. But it, at the end of the day, like, you know, he he has a good heart. Maybe the maybe he's the only one who does. Yeah, yeah with like, the, with, you okay. know, and that's why Humphrey Bogart with his, you know, kind of uh, hound dog eyes, you know, like uh, the kind of like the weariness and the um, and the sadness. I mean, I I think, though, that that they they share something um they share something the like the uh the you know punchy punchy noirs and the kind of the like the the weary philosophical noirs um which is that like finding the truth doesn't actually make anything better right like right. that's and and to me that's the that's the kind of like 
defining tonal thing of the of the genre which is that like we can you know we can find out uh who pulled the trigger but the you know the the world is still a like a vicious dog eat dog place and there is you know i mean because of his uh uh you know frankly ridiculous but sort of glorious wardrobe you know and because of his kind of constant protestations that he is he's so uh put off he's so disgusted by by man's inhumanity to man in in all of these cases um uh that like um you know uh, uh Benoit Blanc is is in that he's in that that uh, uh Chandler uh, what's the guy's name Marlow Philip Marlow yeah. uh type of uh uh type of universe and it it reminds me of it it reminds me of Rashomon <laughs> like the first time I saw Rashomon um like uh the the people who are sitting there uh, by the gate or or one or two people like puzzling over how the you know how they can't get to the bottom of this like they're so sad that that truth is gone <laughs> you know they're so sad that that, <laughs> that that uh nothing means anything anymore and it's like oh my heart is broken for i can you know i can't uh you know make it make make heads or tails <laughs> of uh of this and and there is there's something of that character in like in some of the things in the maybe i'm conflating the two movies but i know that in in the first movie daniel craig a little bit is like i can't believe you people treat each other this way you're you're supposed to be a a family you know and uh and uh marta's good-heartedness is what like uh you know i don't know what what sets her sets her apart um i'm I'm sorry it's a, a, a long tangent pete i know you want to get in <laughs> oh no 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 of course it's great i think it's you're totally right i think that um I, i'd be curious to see a kind of gumshoe uh benoit that would be an interesting angle to take on it um but i, yeah, I guess my answer to mark is that uh a lot of the detective stories that i've watched have been largely involved with the concept of vice as being a chief social evil uh, you know, as in like people who abuse drugs, people who are thieves, right? People who are involved in prostitution, right? People who are stealing money from, you know, embezzling and and uh, and all this other and corruption, right? Uh, all this other stuff. And so, in those senses, you might encounter some social commentary because there might be people who are clearly victims of a particular sort of systemic vice operation, you know, like a sort of reluctant drug addict or like a you know a, a single mom who like can't make ends meet. But who is also kind of involved with crime, but but it's involvement with crime that that is that connects a lot of it in those kinds of stories, um, and in these kinds of, in the more Agatha Christie kind of stories, they're not necessarily all involved in crime, um, you know, all the clue ish stuff. They're involved in society, um, and in that sense, I think that it is more common for them to um, for for the for the twist of the story to be much more of a big deal than the moral of the story. Um, I'm trying to remember, Mark, you remember the ones we did live readings of during the championship season, right? Um, where it was oh, like, you're referring to a, a mouse trap. Yeah. The mouse trap. Yeah. 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 So Joey, what Pete's talking about is that, um, you know, during, during lockdown, um, we would get uh, copies of a, a play you know, a for stage version of an Agatha Christie story. Uh, one of them was certainly Mousetrap. There might have been others as well. Um, and we would just, you know, divide up the parts and just just read it to each other. It was a tremendous fun. 
Yeah, yeah. And then so like one of the things about it is like, oh, what's the thing that makes this detective story, this murder, this murder mystery, which I guess a murder mystery and a detective story are different, I guess, is what we're right. getting around yeah. at here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that I think of it in terms of detective stories because I've read more detective stories. But but this is really a murder mystery, which is not the same. Um, there's some overlap, but not all detective stories are murder mysteries. Not all murder mysteries are detective stories. Is and just because he's the world's greatest detective, he's not Batman, he says, right? So, <laughs> Batman. <yeah. laughs> Batman. No, no, I'm James, not. James Bond, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not Batman, I'm James Bond. <laughs> um well we we uh it's kind of time to to uh it's kind of time to wrap up but um i i guess i just like the the one thing i i did like a couple of the the structural things in in this um a couple of the structural things in this film i you know i know you feel like the the big flashback in the middle um lost momentum but i mean there was there was something there, there's something to the idea of like a, a glass onion. If you think of like onion skin paper, you know, like it's, it's very, th- it's thin and you can, it's translucent. You can see what's underneath. And I feel like the, the rather than, than thinking of kind of peeling the glass onion, maybe the right metaphor is starting with the phenomenon and then encasing it in layers, you know, in leaves uh, of glass, each of which is sort of a lens, which, you know, the refraction kind of creates more uh, uh, clarity, right? Like the way your glasses, you know, uh, clear up a scene and, and with each one, you know, each, each one of these things, these flashbacks or these kind of new, new pieces of information kind of overlays on, uh, overlays on the phenomenon that, that you're seeing to the point where it, it makes it a, uh, a new phenomenon. And that's, that's like, um, you know, th- this murder mystery where it's not until really halfway through that we actually know what the, what the actual murder is, like what the really salient murder, uh, that, that we're trying to solve is. And Pete, you're right. It, it is the obvious answer. It is the obvious asshole guy who like, uh, who did the, who did the murder and who did the, the later murder and like, you know, maybe a, a third, you know, further, um, a third, further murder by, by, you know, shooting through the window. But, um, but like, uh, it's, it's a question of like what, uh, what the original, what the kind of the, 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 status what the meaning of those things are that, that it doesn't come clear until you actually not not peel the glass onion but sort of you know reconstruct um reconstruct the glass onion and peer through its many refracting layers uh to see the punchable face of ed norton on on the inside <laughs> Matt, 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 I'm, I would like to buttress your metaphor. Buttress, buttress them. <laughs> buttress about, them. About the different layers of glass and that they refract and like a lens, they clarify, but they can also distort. Yeah. Right? There you go. There buttress. But, buttress, buttress your opinion of overthinking it. Uh, this has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I, Belinky, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the privilege of the last word since we don't get to hear from you, uh, uh very, yeah. very often. So, I mean, I think, I think 
I, I will certainly I, I enjoy this movie a lot more than Pete did, but I will certainly concede that like it it treads a lot of the same ground as the first movie, both in terms of like the social issues, in terms of the structure of having like a group of rich people in in a, a contained space. Um, and I would be very curious, you know, as, as Pete's already sort of going there and teasing out the possibilities that like they do plan to continue the series, not just do a third one, but you know, keep them going indefinitely as long as the, the Netflix money train uh keeps chugging out of the station um and it does it it feels like there is a perfectly serviceable entertaining but disappointing option where they keep inviting a bunch of like celebrities to uh exotic locations to do like fun breezy sort of two month shoots uh with like you know a stylish murder mystery and like you know thailand this time or something um and they could they could keep that going you know always with a um you know, a, a twist in the way that the narrative is unveiled that either like, you know, we are privileged to information that the characters don't know or that we're certain information is withheld from us or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I could, I could see them doing that, right. You could see it always being a group of rich people and Benoit Blanc gets parachuted into there and he has to, you know, come down, not just solve the mystery, but like bring this sort of moral condemnation upon them. But it does seem like Ryan Johnson is a clever enough writer and, uh, Daniel Craig is a is a talented enough actor uh, that there's more potential here to reinvent the detective story in other ways and to to shoot at other targets. So I, I'm very curious where they go with the series. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's uh, and and if you're you know if you're troubled by anything you see, I just uh, I say to you what uh, Bruce Willis said to Joseph Gordon-Levitt when he tried to like really get an understanding of how time travel uh, works in the world of Looper, which is don't worry about it, don't think about it too hard, don't just don't just just move on, move on. All right, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking and Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Blinky, for joining us. Thanks to uh, Pete and Mark, uh, our our redoubtable uh, podcast crew. Uh, Until next week, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. I say say it does not deserve. You know, they're going to make like five of these and I'm going to have complained about each one. And then I'm going to look back and be like, those were awesome. What was my problem? And it's going to be like this really great body of fun work that was like great movies. And just because it happened to be the wrong day or I picked some, you know, random thing that I wanted to harp on. I'm going to be on record being in aggregate negative on these things when I really should be positive because it really is quite good. It's really quite nice. So apologize for bringing the bringing the the hatred into the uh into the dinner party <laughs> no i like i like uh the sort of counterpoint there yeah. much like uh much like the uh the the fugue itself. yes it's true it's layers right <laughs> <laughs> <Counterbelly>. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs>